Genesis chapter 3, we'll look at verses 14 through 15 this morning. Uh, so I am in a small group. I, I actually, I don't lead a small group anymore. I'm in one, which has been a great honor and privilege to be a part of one. And uh, I attend uh, the Marku Cornigi small group. And uh, we have a pretty good-sized group. We uh, oftentimes will um, we'll break up. We'll do um, meals together. We'll serve together. We'll um, pray together. We'll study scripture together. And uh, sometimes we'll break off and we'll do game night. And that's just when we just come together as a group and we just play a game together. And so one of the games that we did recently is a game uh, that uh, is called Telephone Charades. I don't know if you've ever played this, but basically you split the group in half, one side against the other side, and this one side gets to pick uh, a person doing something in a particular place, and they get to tell the other team, one member of the other team, what it is. And so we had, for instance, Michael Phelps jumps out of an airplane onto a football field, okay? And then that person who who comes up with it tells the person on our team, okay, this is what you have to do. And so that person then who gets the information has to act it out to to the first person on the team. And then that person then, the next person has to act it out. The next person acts it out and so on until the very end when it's all acted out poorly. They have to guess what the original thing was. And so as we got Michael Phelps, right, Michael Phelps, right, jumps out of an airplane onto a football field, as that gets acted out, the, the, it gets distorted. And so at the end, we came up, so we did get Michael Phelps, but then it ended up sits on a toilet reading a magazine. I have no idea how we ended up there, but that is what happened. And that is what happens when you tell a story, and over time, it gets more and more diminished, and over time, it's not the same thing. Uh, Now, if you read the Bible, the Bible actually does just the opposite of that. Uh, What you have in the Bible is not a story that gets diminished. It's a story that actually gets more clarity as the scripture and as the redemptive story unfolds. And so what we're going to do is, in the text this morning, is we're going to see really an outline of the gospel. We're going to see the first time the gospel, or there's redemptive hope, mentioned in all of the Bible. Well, what we're going to see later is as the Bible unfolds, there's going to be more clarity of what Christ has done to redeem us, and more clarity of what happened and how God has created a way and provided a way for us to be redeemed by what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. So as we look at that, my goal is that we can see the benefits and the joys of living on this side of the story, this side of redemptive history, this side of the cross. And so hopefully as we leave today, my hope is that we would recognize that everything laid out in the Bible is for us to see the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so here's what we found in the text so far in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were found guilty for sinning. And what we have seen in this series is their sin, because of their sin, all of us are guilty of sin. However, God in his kindness Even in the garden, even in Genesis chapter 3, provides a way for not just Adam and Eve to be forgiven, but mankind to be forgiving. And we're going to find these words in Genesis chapter 3. I'll start in verse 14. Now, Adam and Eve sin, and then God then directs his attention to the serpent, Satan, 
who tempted Adam and Eve to sin. And this is what he says. Verse 14, Genesis 3. Then the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you've tempted Adam and Eve, the only people on the planet, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you should go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, a few things are happening here. Uh, we saw last week God asked both Adam and Eve questions. He asked, uh, Adam, why did you do this? Adam then blamed Eve. And then Eve, uh, he asked Eve, why did you do this? Why did you sin? Why did you take the fruit that was forbidden? Eve then blames it on Satan. And so God's purpose in asking Adam and Eve questions is to teach them. But if you notice, when he talks to the serpent, when he talks to Satan, he doesn't ask him any questions. He just tells him what his curse is. So there's no way out. There's no forgiveness for Satan. He's already uh, chosen his direction to uh, really rebel against God and to tempt others to rebel against God. And when he speaks to Satan, he's going to speak to him both physically as a serpent, but also metaphorically showing him his position eternally. And so, so here's what he does. He addresses him physically as the serpent. He's going to tell him, uh, okay, you're going to be, you're going to crawl on your belly forever. I have no idea what he would have looked like before this. I don't know if a serpent like had arms and legs, but apparently here he doesn't anymore. And that's why we see snakes slither because of this. He says, you are physically going to um, crawl on your belly forever. You're going to eat dust. And so God physically speaks to him. But not only that, but he speaks to him now as Satan. Metaphorically, he's saying the point of that is to show you, Satan, that you are totally defeated And he's going to do this even several times in the Old Testament. He's going to refer to it twice, once in Isaiah 65, once in Micah 7. Both times God speaks of the serpent and his position. The position of the serpent is that he eats dust. And the problem, the point of God making this statement is this is God's judgment on Satan saying, Satan, from now on you should know that you are always going to lose. You are always going to be a loser. Think about that. It's one thing to think that you're a loser. It's one thing, it's another thing for God to tell you that you are a loser, right? It's too early for an NC State joke. I won't even do it, right? But knowing, like nothing I can do to ever win, nothing I can do. Growing up in church, I think this is important for you to know, because growing up in church, my understanding of God and Satan was sort of this cosmic battle, this cosmic war. It was sort of this back and forth. Okay, God's going to get a point one day, Satan's going to get a point uh, another day, and we don't know who's going to win. It's going to be a close one. But let me just tell you, that is not the picture of the Bible. That's not the picture of of Genesis chapter 3. God is already won. God has already won the victory. Satan is not going to win. All he can do is try to distract the outcome, but he cannot change the outcome. I remember a few years ago, I was watching an NFL football game. I think it was about seven or eight years ago. It was the Miami Dolphins versus the New York Jets. And the Miami Dolphins had just control of the whole game. It was very clear that New York Jets were not going to come back. And so the New York Jets, I think, just scored a touchdown. They just kicked it off. And then um, the Miami Dolphins players were 
running down for the kickoff, and I remember the New York Jets coach walked over to the sidelines. He was an assistant coach, walked over to the sidelines, and as the New York Dolphins player was running by the sidelines, he just reached out and tripped him, and he knocks him over. Why did he do that? Well, he knew there's nothing I can do with the game. I'm just going to make something nasty and do something dirty to distract it. Of course, the coach was fined and didn't play for the rest of the season or didn't coach for the rest of the season. And here's the thing. That's a picture of Satan. He's already lost. He knows the outcome. He knows he is a defeated foe. All he can do is just try to distract the outcome of the game. Yes, Scripture does point him and portray him as who prowls around like a roaring lion waiting to devour us. However, he can only do what God gives him permission to do. This is why John says it so well in 1 John 4, 4. He says, little children, you who are from God and have, and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. In other words, what John is saying, what, what God is saying here in Genesis 3 is Satan is bound in terms of what he can do to you and me. In the New Testament, we see people possessed by Satan, and certainly that can happen today, but not to believers who are in Christ. We will overcome Satan and his schemes. He will not destroy the church. This is why when Jesus says it so clearly in Matthew's gospel, he's like, listen, the gates of hell will not prevail against anything, against the gospel. The gates of hell will not prevail against the gospel. You don't win wars with gates. You're defending. Your, your posture is defense because you've already lost. And this is good news, friends. As long as we are alive as a church, my hope is that Integrity Church will be a growing, thriving church that is reaching people for the gospel. But most likely, one day, unless Jesus returns before, there will be a day where Integrity Church will cease to exist. Because it happens with every church. It happens with the church in Jerusalem. It happens in every church in the Bible. Most of the influential churches in church history have closed their doors. And I pray that God would give us hundreds of years where the gospel is proclaimed in Greenville and throughout the world through Integrity Church. But here's the thing. Even though churches close the doors, God's church will always prevail. It will always prevail. Satan will not defeat us. It doesn't matter what happens to free speech in our country. It doesn't matter how much persecution that will increase throughout the world toward Christianity. God's church will always prevail because God's church is his plan A to redeem a people. How do you see Satan in Revelation chapter 20? You see him as, although still alive, he is not doing so well on this planet He is waiting his final doom. So we don't have to pray, Satan, we bind you. We don't have to say that. He's bound in the sense of what he can do to God's people. And we can have confidence that because of what God says here, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. We can have confidence there. Satan has no authority over us, God's people. There's a reason why God can make that statement. One, because he's God, but also of what he provides in verse 15. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity, which is a separation. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. 
and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I want you to try to imagine this scene without knowing anything else in the Bible and think about how weird it sounds. Adam and Eve are the only people on the planet at this point, and they are both found guilty of sinning after they were tempted by the serpent. And the Lord addresses the serpent, he addresses Eve, then then he addresses Adam. And it's fair to assume that Adam and Eve heard God speak to the serpent, God speak to Satan. And so without knowing what the rest of the Bible is, is about, hearing this, if you were Adam and Eve, it sounds strange. Adam and Eve are wondering, okay, what in the world is God talking about? There's going to be a serpent's head that's going to be crushed, but there's going to be an offspring. So, okay, we haven't even had a kid's conversation yet, Adam and Eve. I guess we're going to have kids now, right? Okay, we're going to have kids. There's an offspring, and that one of our offspring is going to crush this serpent's head, and from that, his heel will be bruised. Like, is he clumsy? Does he not have a garden tool? Like, what is going on? And so it's, it's strange. Now, here's, here's what Eve probably would have assumed. She would have assumed there would be another Adam type, but it would, he would be better. He wouldn't cower to the serpent like Adam did. He would stand up to the serpent and crush the serpent. And from that, he would have his heel bruised. Now, let me break down the separation. Most people hate snakes for a reason. And we hate snakes for a reason because God has cursed the snake. Um, I have this reoccurring snake dream that shows up all the time. I've told Integrity Church about this before, but it just haunts me. Um, And it's like this, I have a boa constrictor on one leg that's squeezing the life out of my leg and eventually it's trying to get up like my body and like, you know, swallow me whole. And then I have a cobra on the other side curled up and waiting in like a, you know, attack posture. And so, like, in this dream, I'm always trying to get the boa constrictor off my leg, but do it slowly because if I do it too fast, I'm afraid that the cobra is going to strike me. And so, like, every single time I'm almost about to get the the boa constrictor off my leg, I make, like, a fast move, and then the snake strikes, and then right before I get bit, I wake up. And I had this dream on my honeymoon— and I slapped my wife across the face. How was your honeymoon? Oh, it was good, you know. Did y'all get into an argument? No, I just had a really bad snake dream, you know. Like, it's so, it's like, it's these weird, like, my wife tells me, she makes fun of me because I make this crazy sound when I have it. Apparently, it's like a sound when I have this dream. And I, it happens, like, every two years, I have this weird snake dream. And we have, you might have these weird snakes. There's only a few people I know that, like, really love snakes, um, but anytime I'm not like a carnival or a fair and the snake guy, I like a- avoid him at all costs. I just don't have, I don't want to do anything with them. I, they just freak me out. They're nasty. They stink. They're, you know, they're not supposed to be like your pet that you kiss on the mouth. It's not supposed to be that way, right? Or any pet for that matter, should you kiss on the mouth. Um, and so there's a reason for that. It's because God has cursed this, this, this creature because it's supposed to be representative of what he would do with Satan. This in the Bible is the only place where God verbalizes a curse, besides Genesis 4, where he curses Cain. 
Every other time that someone is cursed by God is done through another man. But God is declaring this curse over the serpent. And he's declaring it above all. He's really stating this as completely certain that Satan will not win. And we're told that this serpent's head would be crushed. But how? He says through the woman's offspring. Again, you have to remember how this would have sounded to them. We know that God is talking, we know who God is talking about here because we've read the rest of the Bible. We've read the Old Testament, we've read the New Testament, or maybe you're just familiar with it enough to know that he's talking about through the woman's offspring would be one who would come and who would crush the snake. Who is it talking about? Jesus. And we even see clear text in Paul's writing, for instance, in Romans 16, verse 20. He says, the God of peace will soon Crush Satan under your feet. Then it even says, well, the prophet Isaiah says this. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, he's foreshadowing Christ before he comes. What does he say about Jesus? He says, Isaiah 53, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. We, we read this almost every single Good Friday. We say he was pierced for our transgressions. He was, what's the word? Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. If you even go down further in Isaiah 53, verse 10, he says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So we have both places, Isaiah 53, 5, Isaiah 53, 10. You see this thing happen in Genesis 3 to begin to unfold. You begin to see meat being put on this skeleton as this story begins to unfold and become more clear. He's talking about God's son who would crush the head of the serpent. And what God is proclaiming to Adam and Eve, listen, what God is proclaiming to Adam and Eve is the first time the gospel is really mentioned. They didn't know it was the gospel. They didn't understand this, the weight of this truth. In the second century, was, this was often this was, uh, referred to as the proto-evangelium, which is first gospel. The first time the gospel is mentioned is Genesis 3, verse 15. Here, God is proclaiming that his son, the second Adam, as the ultimate offspring of Eve, would be wounded in his destruction of Satan. And so we see this outline of the gospel. We see the gospel then continue to unfold, though, as we read Scripture. And the first person, I want you to understand this, because they heard this truth. Moses wrote it down. In the first five books of the Old Testament, people in Israel knew this is what God said, but they had no idea the weight and the significance of it. We live on this side of the cross. We look at it through the lenses of what's already happened. But they saw it as, this is strength. Something's going to happen. There's going to be a redeemer. We don't know what this is going to look like yet. But the first person to walk the earth who understood what it meant was Jesus. The first person who walked the earth that understood what it was meant would be the one who fulfilled it. Jesus knew that when he came into the world, he knew he would be the one. He would be the one to end the curse of, of Satan's sin. And death. Now, let me show you why. I don't know if you've been in church your whole life, or if maybe if you're new to church, or maybe if you've never been before, and this is your first time this morning, you've probably heard John 3.16. 
I remember in the, like the late 90s, I think it was, where people would take a banner of John 3.16 to football games and the Super Bowl and always be in the end zone, John 3.16. And if you've never been to church, you've, you've heard it or you've heard some of it. It goes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, I want to take you there in John 3. So hold your place in Genesis uh, 3 and turn to John 3. And if you uh, don't have a Bible, we'll have it up on the screen so you can follow along. But what happens is most people know this verse, and it's an incredible verse. It stands on its own. It's, It's a beautiful verse in and of itself, but it's important that you know the context. Because when you understand the context, it will blow your mind on what he's actually saying. Most people know John 3, 16, but most people don't know what is said before that, John 3, 15. And so I want to I take you to the context. I want you to know what's happening here because it carries a lot of weight in what he says in Genesis 3. Now, pay attention. This, I'm about to just drop some knowledge on you, all right? This is going to freak you out, all right? Jesus is talking to a prominent Jew in John 3 named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a prominent Jew who's heard about the popularity of Jesus, doesn't want to be seen with Jesus because he knew that all of his other Jewish friends would mock him if he would see Christ. So he, he hides in the middle of the night. He sneaks into where Jesus is, and he begins to ask Jesus, okay, Jesus, if you're the real deal, how, how, what's your real trick? Like, how are you doing all of these miracles? How are you raising people from the dead? How are you healing the sick? What is it that you're doing that, that, that's making this work? And Jesus is like, you wouldn't understand. Because you only understand worldly things, you don't understand kingdom things. He's like, how do I know kingdom things? He goes, and then Jesus makes this really bizarre statement. He goes, you need to be born again. He's like, how am I supposed to be born again? I'm old. He goes, I need to go back, find my mom and like go back inside of her belly and then come back. Like, how am I? Like, he doesn't understand it. He's like a logical thinker. How am I going to be born again? He goes, no, no, no. You need to be born again of God. And it comes this conversation that Jesus and Nicodemus, this prominent Jew, has and then this is the context that Jesus then makes the most familiar verse in all of the New Testament, his conversation with Nicodemus. But before he says it, I want, I want you to notice what he says. John 3, we'll start in verse 12. It says this, If I told you, Nicodemus, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And Moses, this is strange, right? He's telling the story that happened in the Old Testament. Jesus says this to Nicodemus. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Then... The most familiar verse in all of the Bible is stated. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So he's saying, okay, there is provision in Christ. God provided this way. But before he gives this story, before he tells this very familiar verse that most people know, he says, verse 15, he tells this story about Moses in the wilderness, holding up a serpent, and then when people look to the serpent, their salvation. What is he talking about? He's telling the story in Numbers chapter 21, 
where um, the Israelites were rebelling against God and they were all sinning. They didn't want to follow God's commandment. You had Moses, their leader. They didn't want to follow Moses, didn't want to obey God. And so what happens is God then punishes the Israelites by sending poisonous snakes in their camp. So imagine you're like sleeping and then all of a sudden in your camp, there's like hundreds of snakes trying to bite you. That's what happened in Israel. And they're all freaking out. They're all panicking. Some of them are getting bit. They're dropping dead on the spot. And then uh, the people are coming to Moses and saying, okay, Moses, tell God we're really sorry. Like we're getting bit by snakes. We're dying on the spot. We're tapping out. Tell them we're sorry. And Moses then looks to God and then he begins to pray on their behalf that God would save them from this. Now notice what it said in Numbers 21. Now stay with me. I want to show you how significant this is and how it relates to Genesis 3. Numbers 21, verse 7. So Moses prayed for the people. And when the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it up on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone... He would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, this is this crazy story. But Jesus, when he's telling this story to Nicodemus, he says, Hey, Nicodemus, you remember that crazy story about in Numbers 21 where these guys get bit by snakes? Yeah, that story is about me. When Moses raids up the, the pole and everyone looks to that, that serpent that looks like the other serpents, but is not one, he goes, yep, that story is about me. And by the way, anyone who tries to claim that Jesus never said that he was, never, he was not God has never read the Bible. Because this is very clear, that God is, Jesus again is making another story, telling another story about the Old Testament and saying, that story is about me. And here he's doing the same thing to Nicodemus. He's saying, that story is about me. And here's how it's about him. In the story, what were snakes a result of? Snakes were a result of sin. God sent these snakes to bite them because of their sin. Now, obviously, this is a perfect expression of sin because it was the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve, thereby bringing sin into the world. In this story, in Numbers 21, what do we see about dying people who are polluted with sin? What do they do? They look to the pole that Moses was holding up. And what Moses was holding up was not a real serpent, but it was the likeness of a serpent. Now, why is that so significant? It's significant because of what the Apostle Paul says about Jesus when Jesus died on the cross. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 says, For what God has done, what, uh, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. But sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he uh, commended sin in the flesh. This symbolism, by the way, in Numbers 21 would not have been so perfect if he had been a, had held up a literal snake on the pole. No, it was in the likeness. Jesus, when he went to the cross, he went in the likeness of sin. He became sin for us. Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so what is being foreshadowed? In, in Numbers 21 with Moses as he raises his staff with the likeness of the serpent and was Jesus Christ on the cross. 
We know this because Jesus said that's what it's about. When he told Nicodemus this story was about him, Nicodemus in this story would have heard it as Jesus is the one who's going to bring salvation. Not the likeness of a serpent that Moses raised up that would bring life when you looked at it. Jesus was the one. And before he dives into the most familiar verse in the New Testament, this is the story that he tells. So the point of Numbers 21 is the same point of Genesis 3. No matter how horribly they were bitten, no matter how horribly they were affected by the serpent, the opportunity of salvation was there. And thankfully today, the gospel provides the same opportunity for us. This is possible for the offspring of Eve, the one and only son, Jesus Christ, the truer and better Adam. Every single one of us are like the Israelites. Every single one of us have been bitten by the snake. We've been affected by the fall. And there's only one way of salvation, and it's provided through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus, when he tells this story about Moses raising up the, the, the pole with the likeness of the snake, he's saying when people looked at that likeness of the snake, they, their salvation was granted to them. They, the snake would no longer bother them. The snake would no longer kill them. And he's saying the same thing. Look, when you look to the cross, no matter what sin that you are guilty of and no matter how the fall has affected you, he says, if you look to the cross, there will be salvation there. That's your place where you look. That's the place that you long to see. And so this is why Jesus is a truer and better Adam. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they ate of the tree and they died. But Jesus obeyed God, climbed on the tree willingly to die and bring life. Jesus climbed up on the tree to take the curse so that we would be released from it. Is that good news, friends? It's good news. So if you're here this morning, you're like, okay, I'm hearing this story, and I'm seeing this story like in Genesis 3, in this, this strange account where um, this serpent's head would be crushed, and this, um, this, this offspring, the person of this offspring, his heel would be bruised to crush the serpent's head. I want to tell you, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And as you see this story unfold, and you are affected by the fall like every single one of us, affected by Adam and Eve's sin, like every single one of us, and you're looking for hope, look to the cross. The cross is the one that's lifted high for your salvation. And so this is how you become a Christian. You have to realize that you are like the Israelites, that you've been poisoned by the venom of the serpent. You've been cursed by sin. That's the bad news. But you have good news. You have good news that God raised up, raised up his son, And he became like sin on the cross for us so that we would have life. And he took the curse of sin on your behalf. And you have to look at the cross as the only means of salvation. So salvation is when you recognize that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for you in your place. And that's the gospel. This is why the gospel is not about making good people better. It's about making dead people alive. You were dead in your sins. You were polluted by the fall. You were bit by the serpent. And there is no salvation. There is no antidote outside of the gospel. But God in his grace provides a way to the person and work of Christ. 
So if you're not a believer this morning, my hope is that you would become a Christian, that you would repent of your sins and recognize, yes, I am like the Israelites in the wilderness. I'm polluted. I can't fix myself. I can't create an antidote for myself to fix myself. You cannot do it. I want to tell you, you cannot do it. There's not, not enough righteousness for you to attempt to do to earn your favor with God. You cannot do it. It's only through Christ that you can be saved. And so this morning, you have to repent of your sins. You have to believe in the gospel. By believing in the gospel, you look at the cross and you recognize the cross. When Jesus died, it applied to you. And this morning, I'm going to invite you to do that. This is a band that's going to lead us through songs in just a moment. I'm going to invite you to do that. But if you're here and you're a believer in Christ, how does this change you? Well, hopefully, this story, as it unfolds, as you see this picture in Genesis chapter 3, and we see how Adam and Eve would have heard this and try to figure out what is meant. We see hundreds and hundreds of years of Israel's history of what did he mean when he said the, the, the serpent's head would be crushed and from her offspring, uh, the offspring's heel would be bruised. What did he mean? Now listen, we get the privilege and the benefit of living on this side of the cross and knowing exactly what he means. And then we get the privilege and the benefit of when we read these stories in Genesis. We can have our affections stirred for the gospel and be thankful and grateful that we get to be a part of this story that we really don't belong in. But he's so gracious and kind. And so when we look at scripture now, would we look at it through the lenses of the gospel and what Christ has done for us? And so this morning, my hope is this, that as we laid out the gospel clearly for you this morning, that it would stir your affections for him, that it would make you desire to obey him and to live for him and to proclaim his name wherever you go. And that's our hope this morning. God help us. Let's pray.